Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Olivia Porter, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Angela Chu about her new book, The Buddha in Lana, Art, Lineage, Power and Place in Northern Thailand, published by the University of Hawaii Press. Angela Chu is an independent scholar, formerly a research associate in the Department of History of Art and Archaeology at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, part of the University of London. Her book, The Buddha in Lana, offers the first in-depth historical study of the Thai tradition of donation of Buddha statues. Drawing on palm leaf manuscripts and inscriptions, many of which have never previously been translated into English, the book reveals the key roles that Thai Buddha images have played in the social and economic worlds of their makers and devotees from the 15th to 20th centuries. Angela introduces stories from chronicles, histories and legends written by monks in Lana, a region centred in today's northern Thailand. By examining the stories, themes, structures and motifs, she illuminates the complex, conceptual and material aspects of Buddha images that influence their functions in Lana society. Angela Chu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here um, to talk about your book, The Buddha in Lana. Thank you, Olivia. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you came to Buddha studies and art history. Well, I... I- I worked in investment banking in Hong Kong for a number of years. And during that time, I had Thai clients. So I made uh, many trips to Thailand and I became interested in uh, Thai art and culture. And uh, later, after I moved jobs to London and I worked in London for a while and then I, I left my job and I thought, well, um, I should try to uh, be nice to learn more about uh uh, Thai art and Southeast Asian art generally. So I took a class at SOAS uh, and I enjoyed the class very much. And uh, after that, I went on to do an MA in art history at SOAS and then later a PhD focusing on Thai art. Okay. And how, how did you beget, uh, sorry, how did you narrow your focus to Lana Buddhism? Well, after I finished my MA, which, which is actually uh, relating to Tibet, not Thailand, um, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for my PhD. Um, I thought it would have something to do with Thailand because that, that place uh, did intrigue me, uh, but I need to find a topic. Um, so I actually, at the time I started my PhD, I was planning to do something uh, with the relationship between the art of Lana, which is uh, associated with northern Thailand, and the art of Ayutthaya, uh, which was a kind of rival kingdom um, that uh, was centered in uh, central uh, Thailand and is kind of the forerunner to Bangkok. So these uh, regional arts and their relationship and the, the rivalries uh, between these places I thought would be an interesting topic for history. So I actually had started with this topic. Um, then, um, as I, more I learned about Lana, I started to, um, become more interested in it. And eventually, I think in the, in the first year, I, I, I gave a paper talking about, uh, you know, what little I had found out about, uh, some of the Lana discussions about Buddha images. And then I was contacted by, uh, Dr. Francois, uh, Lagirard, uh, who was at that time the head of the, um, Bangkok office of the École Française d'Extrême Orient, AFAO, in Bangkok. And he had a team uh, that was working on a project, a multi-year project, to go to different monasteries in northern Thailand uh, to make digital copies of, of Lana manuscripts. And he said, you know, why don't you come down and, and take a look at uh, these manuscripts since we have interesting stories about Buddha images, the, the subject of your research. And I said, okay, that's great. 
So um, luckily, I, I got to spend uh, a couple of months with uh, Francois and his team uh, were extremely kind and generous in, in sharing um, all of their resources with me, including uh, their uh, transcriptions and translations of these uh, Lana manuscripts uh, from uh, Northern Thai to Central Thai. And then I read these stories and uh, I translated them onto English. Uh, but then I realized that actually I was getting further away from my original topic, which was having to do with Ayutthaya. And I realized the, the richness of these uh, Lana materials on their own. Uh, so then I actually changed my topic to focus on these instead. Um, I should probably back up and maybe explain a little bit more about what these uh, Lana texts are. Uh, basically, um, these texts are uh, their stories, um, histories, um, different kind of treatises and things like this written by uh, Buddhist monks um, and uh, they, the, uh, the, the earliest I think, manuscript uh, that we have uh, is, I think, dated to the 15th century on the palm leaf. But by and large, because these things were written on palm leaves, they deteriorated or have been destroyed over time. They can't survive the, uh, the climate and the kind of forces of destruction of these things. Uh, nonetheless, um, due to a tradition of copying of these leaves, um, and later uh, printing on paper, you know, this uh, tradition of the stories has come down through time, through the 19th century, into the 20th century. And even today, uh, temples um, actually publish uh, texts of their, their stories uh, in little booklets they even buy at the temples. Okay, so did you use a range of different sources and texts and different versions of the same text? Uh, yes, absolutely. So as I mentioned, due to a tradition of, of copying, uh, the texts that we have today are written on, you know, they're published um, and which Francois and his team discovered are mainly dating from the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, however, because of this tradition of the, of the copying over time, we can feel pretty sure that the the texts um, do go back in time and can relate to uh, events from the 15th or 16th centuries when, when many of these texts were actually written. Uh, nonetheless, though, because um, there was obviously uh, an oral tradition uh, that was moving along with these different stories and, and probably preceded the, the writing down of these stories, um, I wanted to kind of see how consistent some of the structures and the motifs and themes were between uh, the different stories. So I actually did read, try to read, you know, multiple versions of the same story. Uh, and by and large, they're extremely similar. So uh, there was not, not much variation uh, among the different versions that are available. Um, I should probably also add that the, the one reason that you might have so many different versions is because of the tradition of uh, the dispersal of these kinds of stories. So monasteries, um, they, they would build up these libraries of the manuscripts. So, um, so in, in some cases, uh, donors would say, I want to donate manuscripts uh, to uh, a temple. And this is uh, meritorious because you are uh, supporting the, the Dharma. And um, so then uh, they would sponsor um, monks to uh, copy, uh, uh, copy uh, these, these texts. And so then they would appear in different um, monastic libraries. Uh, but then also, as, as Justin McDaniel has, has pointed out in his research, there was whole networks of monasteries uh, that exchanged uh, educational uh, materials, uh, they exchanged um, uh, different traditions uh, of doing things, of writing things. Uh, so, so manuscripts traveled uh, between different monasteries, and this is how, kind of how the how uh, you know different versions that are extremely similar uh, can be found in different temples across the region. That sounds really interesting. Uh, one of the questions that that makes me think about is uh, what texts? What um, sorry, what were the scripts that were being used in these texts? Uh, so there is something called. Uh, 
uh, Lana Dama text, uh, Dua Tam, it is in Thai. And so this is the, I think this is the most frequent uh, script that is used. Um, and um, uh, there, there are, uh, this, you could, this, um, uh, this probably uh, is related to other, other kinds of scripts in the region. And then there are also some other, uh, other scripts that are more related to Sukhothai uh, script that are also used. Okay. So was it the, this type of um, interest in different types of texts and these Lana um, artifacts that motivated you to write the Buddha in Lana? Uh, well, I, I always had an interest in, in uh, the Buddha images of Thailand because uh, there are just so many of them. They are just everywhere in Thailand. This is the, the Buddha images, the art objects uh, par excellence of, of Thailand. And um, you can see them not only uh, in, in temples, you know, I mean, you go into a temple and, you know, you, you, you approach the, the main altar in the main building there. And there's, you know, it could be 50 uh, Buddha statues gathered on that altar. And meanwhile, you also see images of, uh, of the Buddha in other kinds of uh, formats. You know, there could even be, um, you know, pieces of cloth or, or stickers and things like this. You know, you know, even taxi drivers will have may have something in there referring to the Buddha. You know, on their dashboards, etc. So, um, meanwhile, um, not not much actually has been written about why. Uh, Buddha images are, are so important in Thai culture, or why generally, you know, why, what is it that motivated uh, people to, to uh, at the time that they want to make merit, to decide, oh, I want to sponsor a Buddha image? You know, what, what is the, what are the, wh- why do they think that the Buddha image is, is, uh, is the most appropriate uh, donation for them to make? So, um, so, Often in, in scholarship, you know, very uh, very simple reasons are given. Of course, you know, people want to promote Buddhism, uh, so the, the image is a very visible uh, sign uh, for the religion. Um, another reason is, well, uh, people say this is uh, an object of worship, so people can d- direct uh, their thoughts and their prayers uh, towards uh, this particular salient uh, point, the Buddha image. You know, there are even um, uh, some uh, some scholarship that has pointed out to well, there's different uh, symbols associated with the physical features of the of the Buddha image. For instance, you know the you know the ears mean this, the hair curls mean this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, but on the other hand, this doesn't really these reasons don't really explain why specifically uh, Buddha images versus other kinds of donations that you could be making are so important. Uh, and then when I, when I read the, uh, the Lana uh, stories, and I realized these, these talk about images in a way that is not talked about uh, in scholarship. Uh, they talk about the images as, as, as kind of having lives of their own and being related to uh, to cities, to peoples, uh, to to history, in, in a way that is not is not captured uh, by some of the you know the standard reasons that are given for why people uh, think Buddha images are important. Uh, so then, so this is when I I thought that um, what is what would be uh, important is to kind of look at uh, look at the, the the Lana stories as a as examples of literature uh, where people are making choices about how they wanted to depict Buddha images and what they meant in uh, to, to individuals and to societies as a whole. Okay. So you're drawing together the, the textual tradition and the art history itself, the, the sculptures and statues themselves to look at it from a different angle. Uh, yes, so uh, so the, um, the the scholarship on 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 Thai Buddha images that exists now uh, tends to be very focused 
on on two topics: the iconography of the statue. So, in other words, um, what are what are the specific physical features, the uh, the posture, sitting, standing, etc., uh, the kind of gestures that the Buddha is making with his hands. So that that iconography is a major topic, and also the style of the images. You know, the the way that the um, that the features are rendered. These uh, these are also another main topic of study. So together, iconography and style have um, have contributed to our understanding of you know when the different statues were made, you know where um, uh, where they may have been made, the locations, etc. And they kind of uh, help to uh, build our understanding of the historic uh, making of the statues. Uh, on the other hand, that 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 kind of research is very narrow. So it doesn't really explore, you know, you know, why did people make particular statues? Why did particular styles become more popular? You know, why were certain iconographies chosen uh, as opposed to others? You know, those kinds of questions having to deal with um, the the actual people who made and sponsored those statues are, are not really addressed in this in this very uh, focused uh, scholarship on Thai art history. Uh, so when you look at the Lana stories by comparison, it's actually very interesting because um, they, in fact, rarely discuss <laughs> the physical appearance of the statues. Uh, so, so to me, this, as an art historian, this is really interesting. You know, um, it's so different uh, from uh, from from the the typical way that that uh, statues are are spoken of by art historians of Thailand in in the present. Um, and also those stories, because uh, um, they are written uh, by people who who sponsored the making, who who, uh, who actually worshipped, you know, Buddhist statues. You know, it's important to understand, you know, what what is it that they thought about those statues? How did they perceive them? Um, so this is this was became one of the um, motivators for. For trying to bring more attention to to some of these stories. Definitely, I was wondering um, why do you think that these Tamlan scripts had been neglected by traditional art historians and the traditional approaches? Uh, well, I think that um, well, they, I mean, art historians were definitely aware of um, uh, some of these sto- these stories from an early time. It's just that because of their focus on iconography and style. Uh, that they they didn't think that they were all these stories were all that useful to them. Uh, so because they, as I said, the the stories they don't talk about uh, the physical appearance very much. There's nothing there's nothing in there you could say about the style. Um, so um, the only art historian that thought that well maybe maybe what uh, some of these stories are telling us is is trying to maybe give a hint as to where. Um, where some styles may have been uh, uh, originated and proliferated, and it's a very uh, a very limited kind of uh, a very limited kind of reading interpretation of uh, versus uh, the the kind of uh, richness of of the stories. I think another reason why um, art historians and other kinds of scholars as well uh, maybe not appreciate uh, these stories for uh, for so much is because they, they incorporate a lot of magical happenings. So the statues are talked about as being uh, magically produced or uh, themselves uh, creating miracles, uh, flying, emitting lights, and things like this. And uh, there's also um, the appearance of, of yakshas, you know, ogres uh, who who assist uh, the um, uh, the uh, the Buddha uh, when in in, um, in in spreading Buddhism in Lana and um, also other kinds of gods Indra Brahma make their appearances. So I, I think in some ways, um, especially in the in mid twentieth century, you know, scholars they they thought, oh, this is just um, this is just a supernatural uh, kind of nonsense that that really has nothing to do with Buddhism. Uh, but more recently, as you know, um, scholars have said in Buddhist, in Buddhist studies have said, well, 
you know, there is a reason uh, why these magical happenings occur. First, first of all, um, you know, canonical scriptures also refer to all different kinds of deities. You know, the Buddha himself uh, is depicted going to some of these shrines for these deities. And so this is a, a part of, uh, of the world of Buddhism is uh, these kind of deities and, and magical occurrences. Um, and so we, we need to go back and say, you know, these are uh, not just, um, say, say, tropes that are meant to appeal to, to the gullible, but in fact, um, intentional, intentional parts of, uh, of stories and that were, uh, that, that gave meaning to, uh, and they were part of the world of these people who were Buddhist worshipers. Wow. So there's different kind of ritual actors involved. There's the, the sculpture itself. There's the lay people that donate the images. And I suppose also the monks are involved in this relationship as well. Could you talk a little bit about how these different different people interact with each other when it comes to the Buddha images? Uh, yes, thank you. So this is a this is a basic thing that I need to discuss. So um, so the the, the stories in, include exactly those uh, different kinds of parties uh, that you have mentioned, and the, all of them uh, contribute to the production and the kind of ongoing life you know, the ongoing worship of uh, the, the Buddha images. Um, and I, I think it's important to take note of those because, because scholarship has, uh, has so much tended towards seeing Buddha images as strictly as symbols of the Buddha or his doctrine, uh, as channeling the Buddha himself. But in fact, when you see the stories and they, they, they talk about the roles of all these different people, about the different lay people, monks, uh, different kinds of gods that help, um, that you see that there's a, a whole world of, of, uh, of, of agents who participate in the making and the ongoing life of statues. Um, the um, anthropologist Alfred Gell um, uh, wrote a book uh, some years ago, Art and Agency, and he talked about how well he wanted to write um, about art as uh, as something anthropological, as as a social as a social uh, phenomenon, and not something strictly aesthetic um, or just uh, having a symbolic value. Um, these did not uh, quite capture for him, you know what. Uh, the way that uh, people interacted with art objects uh, and the way that they interacted with uh, through art objects with other people. Um, so um, he, he said that, well, he said that there's um, basically two parties in any kind of social interaction. So one would be the agent, uh, someone who does something. And then there's the patient, the person who is uh, the recipient of that action. Uh, and so in every interaction, there's the agent that's doing something, the patient receives it. Then the patient uh, may also become an agent by, by going and doing something to someone else. And so there's a, there's a kind of this chain of agents and, and patients. And art objects themselves, he says, can also be agents and they can also be patients. So... Um, in the making of a Buddhist statue in Thailand, how it works is is this, and we can see in that, that kind of uh, the chain of uh, agents and patients. So, uh, so the first thing will be say, um, say you know the, the the donor decides, oh well, I would like to uh, make a Buddhist statue. Uh, so in that case, uh, they will go to uh, the craftsman and, and cause that craftsman to to make a statue. The craftsman will then uh, kind of channel the uh, agency of the Buddha in trying to make a statue that has some re resemblance to, to the, the Buddha or other images. Um, then once the statue is completed, uh, then monks and also the, with the help of the lay congregation and the donor uh, will then go about consecrating that statue. And there's a, 
there's a, a certain ceremony where they basically chant the life story of the Buddha so that it, it, it uh, enters uh, the um, enters the statue so that it may become the Buddha. Uh, Donald Swear has an excellent uh, book about this. Um, and then, you know, once that consecration is finished, then the Buddha statue is is uh, is placed in the temple, and then people begin to worship it. So, um, so there's the chain of of agency from uh, the the donor uh, going to craftsmen uh, through the Buddha, through the monks and the lay people, uh, through the image itself, uh, and then once that image is in the temple, it, it can also become the patient of of, of worshippers who will go to it and use it as their uh, object of focus. Uh, they may bring p- prayers to it for certain things to happen. Or, um, and then the statue itself, um, uh, uh, responding to these wishes, uh, or, or may also become an agent. Uh, in the Lana stories, um, the, the statues um, actually um, exhibit agency by by traveling around, so they travel around the region, and they, in this way, they they basically select um, the worshippers uh, that uh, will take care of them. And statues are considered uh, not to stay with, uh, stay in a place uh, where they would be neglected. So then, so um, they will be moving from uh, going to different donors and based on the merit of those donors, they would stay with them. So the, the statues themselves were not just patients, but also uh, agents. So, sorry, I think I, I got off a little far from your question, but, but basically um, the, uh, the stories talk about um, how um, a particular, um, particular lay uh, lay donors uh, came up with the meritorious idea to create a statue, and then how statues were created through the agency of these donors, as well as monks who consecrated them. Uh, frequently in the stories, if um, uh, particularly if a, story, if a statue is made of metal, uh, there will be descriptions of uh, gods uh, coming down to donate metal into the, the cauldron of metal that will be used to to create this create the uh, statue. So, and, and then after the consecration, there's uh, different, uh, you know, sort of all kinds of uh, celebrations and involvement of, of different uh, human and lay communities in the worship of those statues. Wow, that all sounds really interesting. It sounds like quite a journey from the kind of creation, the idea, then the creation, and then the donation of the statue. Um, I was wondering, so when a donor comes up with an idea and they want to have a statue or a Buddha image made and it's consecrated and donated to the temple, when when the decision is made that the, the statue is going to be moved, is the donor usually happy about that? Are they okay about that? Is there a transference of merit or um, have there ever been disputes? Oh, it's, a good, it's a great question. Um, so, uh, so among the uh, among the the uh, most famous uh, Buddha images in Thailand are uh, the Sihing Buddha, uh, which is in Chiang Mai. Although there are, there are other uh, other statues which claim to be the Sihing in other parts of Thailand, but I'll talk about the uh, Chiang Mai version for now. And another statue which is also extremely famous is the Emerald Buddha which is currently enshrined in Thailand on the grounds of the uh, royal palace in Thailand. And these two statues and, uh, are, are, um, are the subject of, of, uh, of, uh, of palm leaf manuscripts that were probably written around uh, the 15th century. Uh, so the, um, the chronicles about these relate um, um, at length about how they were made and by who. And then after that, they, they basically uh, describe the statues moving from patron to patron, uh, from, uh, from India through Sri Lanka, uh, and also around uh, Northern Thailand, also uh, Cambodia. Um, and, um, 
the um, so the, uh, the the way that they moved, as I said, first of all, is that uh, the Buddha images is, is understood as uh, as allowing itself to be moved. So it wouldn't move if if it felt that it was going to some place which would be uh, where it would receive uh, less less worship or would have less of an effect on people. And so it goes to those patrons which are considered to be highly meritorious. So um, in the stories, the, the, the patrons that are described as worshiping the statues include some very famous um, uh, rulers and heroes in, in Buddhist lore. So, so the, uh, the, the person who uh, had the idea to create the Emerald Buddha is credited, credited as Nagasena, um, who is a is a, a famous monk who is who is the um, who is the monk who who answered uh, questions by King Melinda, a skeptical king, and he put aside that king's doubts about Buddhism. And this is the subject of, uh, as you know, the famous uh, kind of semi-canonical work, the Melinda Panha. Um, so this this very famous uh, monk is credited uh, by the Northern Thai story as the creator, as the person who said, you know, for the sake of the religion, I think that we should make a Buddha statue. And so he is credited. He then, uh, the, the gods hear his wish uh, and they bring a jewel, uh, a very, uh, a very uh, prestigious jewel and the gods carve it into the Emerald Buddha images, image. Um, and then it is in, in, it is, uh, consecrated and enshrined uh, in India. And uh, very interestingly, uh, the, according to the Northern Thai story, this is, uh, they, they barely describe um, the, uh, the encounter with Melinda, which is you know, the, what, what Nagasen is usually associated with. Instead, you know, this creation of the Emerald Buddha statue is, is, is practically given as the, the highlight of his life. Um, but uh, the, the way that the statue uh, moves is, uh, you know, and the other statues move is kind of, well, there, there could be um, uh, times of war that uh, the statue might be hidden or, or transferred away to places of safety. Um, there's also instances where, you know, a uh, one king uh, will will go to the the, the king who is uh, currently uh, in possession of the statue and say, "I would like to have this statue." And um, uh, because the the merit of kings uh, at that time was associated with uh, their military prowess and their power, you know, there there is an aspect of 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 um, you know the threat of war as as causing some of the these transfers, but in a justifiable way as due to great merit. You know, it's, this is the reason why uh, a particular king might have access to uh, huge numbers of soldiers and uh, cleverness and military strategy, etc. cetera. Um, another way that statues would move could also because be, be kind of um, in a more amusing fashion. So uh, in the story of the Sihing Buddha, uh, that statue moved because of trickery. So uh, there was one king of um, a Pet uh, who said, you know, I, I, I've heard of this famous statue, the Zihing Buddha. I would like to, to get a hold of it. And, and kings want to get a hold of these statues for, you know, for uh, reasons that they want to um, assist uh, themselves and their people to, to move towards nir- nirvana uh, by by improving their um, their understanding of Buddhism by having these statues around, um, but also there, there there's reasons of prestige. You know, you have this famous statue near you. It kind of says something about that king's merit. Uh, so anyway, so this king he heard of the Sihing Buddha and he said, "I would like to get a hold of it." So then he he dispatched his mother uh, to Ayutthaya, where the the statue was at that time, and the mother. Uh, got the king of Ayutthaya to fall in love with her, and then one day, you know, when the king was uh, was in a good mood, uh, she went to him and said, uh, "You know, I, I I would like to have the Sihing Buddha. Do you think I can have it?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." So she went to the hall where the Buddha images of the kingdom of Ayutthaya were held, 
And she asked the curator there for the Sihi Buddha. He identified it for her. And then she had it sent away on a boat to her son in Gangpeng Pet. And naturally, the king of Ayutthaya, when he figured out what happened, he was very angry. Uh, and the queen said, and, and this, the, the queen said, oh, oh, don't worry. You know, you told me to, to get the Sihi Buddha, but that's okay. I can give it back to you. I will make a copy of the statue which we'll keep in Gangpeng Pet, and then we'll send the original back to you. And of course, what happened was that the uh, people of Gangpeng Pet, uh, naturally, they kept the original and sent a copy back to Ayutthaya. Um, so anyway, just want to give an example of, of another way uh, that's, that statues uh, could, be, could be moved. That's a really good story. <laughs> So is that is that the type of story that's depicted in the Tamnan scripts? Uh, yes, exactly. So there's, um, as you can see from this example, it's um, um, there's examples of of that highlight uh, uh, kind of the, the virtue of particular le- leaders. Um, uh, so, for instance, um, uh, uh, there's there's one. A figure that appears in a couple of stories, uh, which who, who is probably Ram Kamhaeng, which is uh, a very famous king of Sukhothai, uh, a great hero of uh, Thai history, and um, his his virtue, uh, you know, as a, as a great leader, as a very meritorious individual, um, would be one compelling reason why uh, statues would kind of gravitate towards him. Uh, on the other hand, you know these kind of st- other stories where you know the, the the mother goes to get the statues. It also um, adds a adds a layer. I think that um, maybe people can relate to. You know the kind of you know it's you 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 need to um, you know hatch a plot sometimes to to get something done, and this is the uh, the kind of um, maybe. Partly realistic, I would say, and also sort of entertaining uh, way that that people would have engaged with these stories, and, and not just as something that was uh, uh, mythical or legendary, but you know, could have maybe some resonance with the realities of of the way politics was conducted on the ground. Definitely, um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what the inscriptions could tell about more normal donors, maybe not the royal donors or the very famous or renowned ones, but kind of just the average normal lay people at the time. Yes. So, um, so inscriptions, so, so most Thai, Thai Buddha statues um, were not made with inscriptions. Um, So this is, uh, this has made um, the question of dating um, all the more difficult for uh, for Thai art, and one of the and it's one of the reasons why uh, iconography and style, I think, have become so important. Is that those are very important clues. Then, if you don't have the date, as to figure out how to date particular statues and and, and drawing out the the history of, of Thai art. Uh, but anyway, there are there are a number of st- of Buddhist statues that have inscriptions and. Um, and um, some of these, uh, many of these have been published. Um, and there is one important resource which I, I think never got enough attention, which is um, in the uh, early 1970s, uh, Hans Penth, uh, he was a scholar of Northern Thailand based in Chiang Mai for many years. He's kind of one of the pioneering scholars uh, of Northern Thai history. Um, he, he had a project. Uh, to go to temples in the central part of Chiang Mai and, uh, and, and identify and record all the Buddhist statues in, these, in this set of central um, of temples uh, that had inscriptions. Um, so, um, so the uh, central part of Thailand, uh, I mean, central part of Chiang Mai is important because um, you know, although Chiang Mai has a long history going back to the, uh, the late 13th century, you know the city um, was uh, uh, was uh, was basically uh, abandoned uh, during the 
during the, I think it was early 18th century, uh, due to war. At that time, uh, the, the Burmese for a couple of hundred years, uh, from the 16th until the, the late 16th until the uh, early, from the 16th until the uh, late 18th century, uh, were basically the suzerains over, over northern Thailand. And at one point in the early 18th century, the city uh, was just uh, under was just the subject of war and then abandoned uh, and all the people had moved away. Um, after the after the Northern Thai managed with the help of Ayutthaya to drive out the uh, the Burmese soldiers. Uh, after that, um, the, the king uh, uh, decided that you know the capital really should be Chiang Mai once again of, of Northern Thailand. So so he had uh, Chiang Mai rebuilt and the central uh, part is where uh, originally the king's palace and also the the homes of nobles were were based in you know in the walled city at the, in the middle there, and so the, the temples there you know have a have a particular history, um, and they um, and the um, and uh, the the different um, uh, classes of people are also represented. Uh, in these inscriptions, so um, a, a good portion of the donors were probably noble people, and this can be discerned from uh, the titles that the, that they give for themselves in the inscriptions. Um, on the other hand, there's there's a number of common people as well. So so people refer to themselves as as mayor, as as mother, um, or you know, or they refer to grandfather, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so many of these people are lacking. Titles are probably commoners, um, and there are also um, probably um, uh, nearly two thirds are are men, which is probably not surprising because these are uh, they are the ones that controlled resources. Um, uh, but then you know there's also quite a you know a third women is is not is not small. Um, in addition, there are also monks who also made donations, and there are also cases where. Um, uh, different people work together to you know, to make a donation. So there will be uh, lay people and monks who. So the monks, I, I assume, were probably related to the lay people. They're probably blood relatives that together uh, banded together to to make a donation. And um, and uh, and even um, and in most cases, they're it's not just individuals who are making donations. There's quite a few examples where you know it's a husband and a wife, it's a whole family. Uh, who together are making a donation, and then, and then uh, when people make donations, uh, sometimes they they refer in the donations to other family members and how they would like to share the merit uh, of those of, of the making of the statue uh, with relatives who have passed away, and uh, and uh, to help those people to improve their store of merit so that in the next life uh, they they can go on to. Uh, an even better uh, existence. Okay, so there's lots of different types of relationships and different um, levels of status and elements of gender involved in who's donating these statues. Um, in chapter six, when you talk about the Buddha images as the objects of donation, you use the term socio-karmic. I was wondering if you could explain that term. Um, I well, I, I borrow that term from uh, from the uh, from Jonathan S. Walters, who whose scholarship I, I admire greatly. Um, he has brought a lot of attention, I think, to to um, to Sri Lankan materials and and how they. Uh, how they uh, how they reflect uh, not not only uh, Buddhist concepts as we understand them from canonical texts, uh, but also uh, as he puts it, um, how people were making their way through the world with their lives uh, using these materials. Uh, so he draws attention to the fact that when people talk about karma, it's not just uh, something that. Uh, individuals uh, create for themselves and, uh, and and as a kind of a narrow path that is uh, personal, uh, individual to one person. But in fact, karma is something that um, people share together. 
so he, he gave the example of uh, how as a as a foreign researcher when he goes to Sri Lanka and and to do his field work and uh, he the people there say oh you know in the, in the previous life we must have known each other so uh, in a karmic sense um, people uh, believe that you you basically kind of go through life with uh, people that you were associated with in, in previous lives. You know, this is this is uh, relates also to the Buddha himself, who transmigrated with you know the previous existences of his wife and children. Uh, but expanding on that, um, today you know people believe that you know your interactions uh, with others uh, are, are related to your your previous existences. And the family members that you have also may have transmigrated together with you, uh, but also other people that you interact with, some of your work colleagues, uh, close friends, etc. Also, also have there is a, a communal sense uh, of people transmigrating together, uh, and this is the the socio uh, karma that Jonathan Walters talks about, and he has different uh, categories for different the different kinds of uh, a social. Uh, karma that are expressed uh, in in Sri Lanka, um, and I, I just borrowed this term because the uh, because this is what is shown by the inscriptions and by the uh, the Lanar manuscripts is uh, is very much uh, this sense of of community, and in particular, I, I want to point out that you know these you know people think of uh, Buddhist monks as being kind of being withdrawn from the world. Uh, separate from politics, separate from commerce, uh, but in fact, you know what the stories show is that, and these inscriptions show is that you know they had a lot of interactions. You know, of course, even today, of course, you know they had interaction, interactions with lay people, and um, they are also included in the sense of the socio karmic uh, community. Yeah, I found it um, interesting considering the different individuals that are involved in the statues and sculptures that you talk about, but also the interconnectedness. And one of the individuals that I was interested in was the craftsmen themselves. Mm. What type of craftsmen were they? And was there any element of um, devotion that went into the craft or any ritual? Or were they kind of secular craftsmen? Oh, this is very interesting. I, um, I, I, I think uh, from uh, from evidence of today and uh, from going back to the nineteenth century, uh, they were definitely specialists um, who uh, who who were painters. So, so painters were were probably the same people who painted murals as well as uh, illustrations in some illustrated manuscripts in Thailand. Um, there are also people who. Uh, specialized in casting and metal casting of, of Buddha images, and obviously people who also did carving of, of wood, uh, of, um, of stones uh, into, into Buddha statues. Um, so we know that these people existed, but there's very little evidence for uh, their names. So they're, they're, they're the, the, there are some uh, a few craftsmen who are actually named in some of the inscriptions that uh, Hans Penth found in Chiang Mai, uh, but very few, and they're all later examples. So, you know, from the from the late nineteenth century and later is when uh, craftsmen are identified. So there's one inscription where um, the inscription states that you know so and so I uh, I carved this statue. Um, so I I don't know whether. He got more merit from doing the carving by himself. You know, perhaps we, we don't really we don't really know. Uh, but generally, the craftsmen are anonymous, and um, uh, they they don't um, they don't share in the they don't seem to there, there's no they don't seem to share in the merit of the donation. It's it's really the donors who are uh, identified. As the as the people who take the merit, they're the ones that uh, paid for, and who um, had who they, they refer in the description to themselves as having as having come up with the idea to create the statue. So that meritorious act, that act is is meritorious in how they derive their merit, and 
their devotion of the resources to create the statue. Um, as for the craftsmen, you know, they receive the payment. Um, we don't really know uh, the extent to which they perform rituals to, uh, say, purify themselves and you know, meditate, etc. So there, there are some, um, uh, there, there are manuals, you know, especially for Tibetan Buddhism, and it's very famous where they have manuals to talk about, you know, all of the, all of the behaviors and practices that a craftsman must undertake when about to uh, paint or create a Buddha image. Uh, but for Thailand, this is not um, this is not the case. We don't have this kind of uh, this kind of evidence for for what people actually did. So so even in Donald Swear, even in his book about uh, focusing on uh, Buddha statues in Thailand. He, he, he has uh, interviews in there with, with craftsmen and he watches them making a, casting a particular statue. But there's nothing there where he says, oh, they, they meditated or they, you know, they abstained from doing certain things, you know, while making the statue, nothing like that. So the extent to which um, practices were followed is, is unclear. But in any case, um, the, the texts really uh, privileged the, the the donors, the original in, initial sponsors, as the ones who who gather the merit uh, for creating a statue. Oh, that's really interesting. I'd be curious to know more about the craftsmen and if the similar types of craftsmen are still in action in Thailand today. Uh, um, yes, yeah, there are. I mean, there are studies there about them, but I, I think it's. Um, Probably, probably quite. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it's probably relatively, you know, relatively limited. And also, the production methods are are different now. You know, now, you know, mass production can be can be done in a way that uh, could not be done in the past. Definitely, um, it's been so interesting to hear about the Buddha and Lana and learn a bit about art history and art history specifically in terms of Buddhist studies and Buddhist artifacts. Um, but I think we should wrap up here. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on next. Uh, well, I, I've become interested in, um, in uh, questions of, um, of the cultural heritage and of movement of, of, of Thai and well, Asian art in general. Um, so I've been trying to do some research on uh, on provenance and uh, collecting of, of Buddhist uh, of Buddhist art, uh, particularly uh, outside of Asia. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Um, so I'd like to say thank you so much for being on the show today, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about your future research. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the talk, and thank you so much. Thank you, Olivia.